Good evening, good morning, wherever you are. We're in Phnom Penh, and with me today is uh, the famous pair, Chris Minko, who is a rock and roll musician in Australia and then moved to Cambodia where he has been quite prominent in disability sports among other things and his daughter Anya who is uh, also prominent uh, working in the education sector with Bamboo Schools which uh, educates uh, young Khmers. Welcome to the program. Nice to be here Luke. Thank you so much for having us here, Luke. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> a pleasure. Chris, you, you were very prominent with the trade union movement in Australia, organising festivals, and certainly as a... I was going to say saxophonist, I know that's wrong, but you're in the brass <laughs> section with the uh, bachelors from Prague. That's right. Who I, uh, as a young man, uh, hopping around the bars and pubs in Melbourne, late 70s and early 80s, yeah. uh, I, I saw you play and you were great. How did you get to Cambodia? As, uh, just walk the audience through. Ah, look, an interesting story. I, I um, spent my 70s living in Germany for eight years, returned to Australia in my late 20s, um, ended up uh, becoming one of the first round of artists in the community funded by the Australia Council for the Arts. And I was seconded on to uh, working with the Building Workers Industrial Union, Victorian mm -hmm. Trades Hall Council, uh, designing parades, union uh, union campaigns, logos for unions. And then purely by accident, I was also at the same time working as an assistant to the Moomba Procession Director. Um, uh, this is in Melbourne. This is in Melbourne, who had a heart attack three months before the 87 parade. So I was asked to jump in and direct the parade. That subsequently went really well. So I was given a three-year contract and had to do the then what they called, of course, the uh, Bicentennial Parade in 1988, mm -hmm. which is quite a story in itself because I worked with Winnie Quagliotti the, uh, from the Wurundjeri tribe. And secretly before the parade, we, we built a very large float which depicted the head of a kuri with a big tear right. coming out of it. And Winnie and the local kuris all came together with a banner at 40,000 years dream time, 200 years nightmare. And of course, right. if I remember yeah. correctly, the Wurundjeri tribe. That's right. that, that's, that's a Melbourne yeah, tribe. Yeah, that's a Melbourne so. tribe. Cool and so, um, basic. So being the procession director, I was the one who called the shots. I started the parade. And Con the Fruiter was supposed to lead the parade as king of Moomba for that year, mm -hmm. the Moomba monarch. But we put in Winnie and the Koori float and let loose and all of a sudden my radio all hell broke loose get that float out of there minko and police were moving everywhere and they took the float out actually in russell street and uh they allowed it later on at the tail end of the float to come back in again but at least we made a, a political statement i was sacked immediately and uh so the miscellaneous workers union i worked with a very close friend martin kingham who was the uh, uh became the federal president of the cfmeu um, Martin rang up the Miscellaneous Workers' Union. Uh, they slapped a ban on collecting garbage in Melbourne for a week and I was reinstated. Mm -hmm. I then went on to do the 89 parade, which was based on music and uh, rather controversial again with Paulie Stewart from the Painters and Dockers again. Who I remember, we, we very well-known journalist. We designed a huge bed, a big double bed, and on that bed we had the Dockers playing live and we surrounded that float with about 300 lingerie-clad prostitutes from the Melbourne Prostitutes Collective. So I was sacked again. You know, uh, 
and then Cambodia. What happened is that if I go right backwards, when I first left Australia as a 16-year-old, I spent three months in Bangkok before going over to Europe. And I swore to myself that I would always come and live in Southeast Asia. I'm a first generation of Ukrainian father and German mother. So I was drawn very close to Europe for many years, but I swore I'd live in Asia. After the Moomba episode, I'd been traveling backwards and forwards between Thailand. And at that time also, I met Anya's mother and I linked with the Office of the National Culture Commission in Thailand. And this is quite a beautiful story because what happened is I went and I often advise young people to never hesitate to contact truly famous people because there is a potential that they may answer you. And if they don't, it doesn't really matter anyway. Indeed. So what happened is that I wanted to facilitate a cultural exchange program between Thailand and Australia, a festival exchange program, bringing elements of Loi Kratong from Sukhothai over to Melbourne. So I asked for a meeting with Sir Edward Weary Dunlop. Nice. Who was uh, a veteran of World War II. He was a doctor in the POW camps and very much a part of uh, Melbourne folklore. Yeah, a lot of people said, how did you do that? And I said, it was easy. I rang his office and his secretary made an appointment. Mm-hmm. So I went up, he, had a, he was given a lifelong office in Parliament House, in Victorian Parliament, right. in the Treasury Building. And we had a cup of tea and scones and we talked and I told him about my idea and he showed me his medals and told me about his background. It was a beautiful time, probably an hour and a half, right. coffee and scones. And then he said, look, Mr. Minko, let me think about this. And then I went home. And then four days later, I woke up and the news came through that Weary Dunlop had passed away. So I thought, whoa, you know. About six days after that, there was a state funeral, beautiful state funeral, where over half a million people of all walks of life, which is how magnificent Weary they was as a person. Kilda Road yeah, it was unbelievable. And the horse-drawn carriage took it down. And we all stood there. It was in July. It was freezing cold. Everyone stood there and just watched this go past. And then I walked back home to Port Melbourne, where I lived at that point, and I opened up my letterbox, and inside that was a letter from Weary Dunlop. Oh, nice. And it was a reference to the National Culture Commission of Thailand. I flew up to Canberra, presented the letter to the... Thai embassy and as a result for the next two years I was flying backwards and forwards sort of on a cultural exchange program between Thailand and National Culture Commission and through that I also met Michai Virabhatya who became a a mentor in my future work in uh, Cambodia. At that point I'd already married Anya's mother and she became pregnant so we went back to Australia for Anya's birth and for the first two years so that she could get all the necessary immunizations, et cetera. But all the while, I really wanted to come back and live permanently in Southeast Asia. So I applied for a position through AusAid as a technical advisor. And um, I was offered the position, this is in 96, we came over in October 96. I was offered the position as a technical advisor to the then basically non-existent Cambodian disability movement. Right. Right. So one of the first things I did being an Australian and with my event management background, which was Moomba, Ligon Street, I also did the Australian Grand Final for nine years. 
mm-hmm. the grand final parade and the halftime entertainment. For the Australian as, Rules. Yeah, for the AFL at the MCG. So I realised the power of sport to affect positive change. Right? So uh, there was a beautiful uh, coincidence insofar that Australia was also hosting the Paralympic Games in 2000. So we set the objective, we worked very closely with the International Olympic Committee, who gave us a wild card to enter into the volleyball competition. And that's where it all started, right? So it was the, uh, we developed the national team, we went down to Sydney, and lo and behold, we ended up beating the host nation Australia, right? So at that point, we made a decision that we were going to become number one in the world. Okay. So for the next few years, we traveled around the world in a dual role. One role was, of course, we were shooting for number one in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? The second role, we were, we were like the landmine survivors team. So wherever we went, we also promoted and raised awareness about the landmine issue. The team were even presented to the German parliament as a good example. And we ended up going to Greece, Korea, Canada, Slovakia. Slovakia. Germany, Thailand, Thailand, and uh, probably a couple more that I've missed out there. Mm. <coughs> yeah, Greece was another one. Absolutely amazing time, you know. Um, and then returning after that, this is going into uh, going back to the World Cups. We ended up reaching number two in the world in 2011 against the Germans, and that World Cup was actually held here in Cambodia just at the, the Olympic Stadium. Just, just for the listeners' sake, I think it, it, it's helpful to explain that uh, I remember being in Afghanistan and I was just uh, stunned by how many people played volleyball. And often in combat zones, as it was in Cambodia, volleyball is uh, it's a short, relatively short kind of area in which to cover. And uh, I don't know if it's for that reason. One person once said to me that... Uh, it's very easy to clear landmines. You know, it's just a short area. And for whatever the reason, perhaps that, but volleyball is extremely popular in uh, countries which have had a long exposure to combat uh, wars and combat zones. It's actually very easy to explain, Lou. Mm-hmm. If you look at volleyball, all you need is a piece of string and a ball. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you string that between two trees. Right? Secondly, what we've found, and this is recognised all around the world because we were taking a team of landmine amputee survivors through to number two in the world and they could leap right into the air, just absolutely unbelievable their ability. And uh, it's an ideal sport for amputees, right? The agility that they have to achieve, you know, and so it went, they went hand in hand. And it was right? the first sport that uh, of any kind really to give this country some yeah, prominence when it yeah. was still basically a struggling failed yeah, state. Very much so, you know. I think it was, uh, I mean, up until the SEA Games that were held recently, it was the number one rating event, the, the World Cup final in 2011 here. At one point, a friend phoned me and said, Chris, I'm outside, there's not even a car or a motorbike moving. Everyone's somewhere watching the final on television, which was broadcast on all TV stations. And the Prime Minister was, of course, watching. And number two in the world was an absolutely brilliant result. That's a hoot. Absolutely (laughs) brilliant. And it really opened up, in real terms, Luke, one can be honest, and international experts would also agree with this, is that 
Cambodia is very advanced in many of the disability sectors. They, mm-hmm. The initial sports programs allowed the rest of the disability sector to take a quantum leap right, and raise awareness about the ability of people with a disability. So after that, we set up wheelchair racing. We set up wheelchair basketball. Now, if you look at these, these two as examples, already a Cambodian has qualified and participated in the Paralympic Games in Tokyo. And they hosted the Paralympics for the Southeast Asian Games. Yeah, they hosted the Southeast Asian Games. And the Cambodian women's national basketball team is now ranked number three in Asian, in the Mm -hmm. Asian area. So it's actually stepping up the ladder. It's a dynamic team, right? So again, they're providing, they're acting as a role model for other people with a disability. And from there, you, you resurrected your music career. If that's I, not a re- if that, yeah, I don't quite mean it like that. I'm not saying, <laughs> suggesting you were dead. But Crom uh, was very successful, the band you put together here. I, uh, just a correction. I was the yep. trumpet player of the original Bachelors from Prague when it was first formed. Played for, in, I was in the Bachelors for four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I've always played music. Music is a great passion and a... And, a true focus and quite often I've lived from my music right um, and I'm a guitarist in 2011 Anya's mother passed away which um, was a very difficult time for me you know grief is a very complex thing and personal and very personal so what I did is when she passed away I swore that I would write her a 14 track album which I subsequently did and recorded over the next couple of years. And that's an album called Songs from the Noir. Mm-hmm. And on that album, I worked with two very young Khmer singers. They were both traditional singers, both in their very early 20s. The Chumran sisters, Sapir and Sepek and they used them as also harmony. But we also started to do uh, songs that were based on my guitar playing, but the vocals and lyrics were done in Khmer by the two women. Right. Um, it was beautiful music. It's, uh, it's... Uh, I, I, I've watched and heard you play here many times as well. Look, as a musician, look, you know, I, I was classically trained. I learned classical trumpet right through to um, Melbourne University, the Australian Music Examination Board exams, so I'm a diploma. Mm-hmm. I've always played music throughout my life. You know, I started playing the banjo at the age of 12 moved over to guitar from 14 onwards. I compose music and play music on the basis of it comes from within. Uh, some people ask or describe Crom as being music from the heart, and that's what it is. I never force a song. After Songs from the Noir, we decided to do a second album which focused more on the female vocalists. That was a 12-track album called Neon Dark. Mm-hmm. And then in 2016, we cut a third album called The Mekong Delta Blues, right. right? All three were very, very successful. The uh, second album was nominated as Album of the Year by Mark Davis of the uh, right. uh, BBC4, Channel 4. And uh, subsequently, the two girls, or the two women, have gone on to become recognised Cambodian superstars. Right? They even travel internationally, you know, performing... Uh, Khmer music, and I continue just to play my guitar quietly at home as one does. Okay, yeah. one more question before I ask Anya. 
what's it like to grow up with dad. <laughs> oh, God. We'll get, there, we'll, get there, we'll get there in a minute. Well, just on the music side, musically, I know how to, I can read a little bit and I know how to play a little bit, but I'm, I'm dreadful. I've always noticed that Khmer music and Western music seems to fuse quite well. Is that a fair statement? Because I don't hear that in Vietnam or in Thailand. You, know, you look at bands like Dengue Fever or even uh, Cambodian Space Project and Chanty Cack is no longer here, but I always get this feeling that the Khmer music does fuse well with uh, Western pop, Western rock and roll music, jazz. I would tend to say, Luke, that any music does. Right. right? What you're talking about is basically world music, Mm -hmm. right, which tends to be a merger of one type of music with Western music, right, which um, the reference that you've made there. That said, I would also allow for the fact that if you look at Cambodia, you know, I have a deep passion and deep love for Cambodian music. Cambodia is one of those nations like Ireland. There are a few nations obviously around the world that um, that places music along with dance at the pinnacle mm-hmm. of the cultural ladder. Right? There is um, something very, very unique, and I know the difference that you're talking about, that you don't really find in Thailand or you don't find in Vietnam, these absolutely beautiful melodies. And I refer going back to pre-Sinsissimon. Right. Right. There's a lot of focus on the Sinsissimod period. The that's, that's an amazing period, right? but what it is is that's a merge of Western and Khmer music, right? Okay. Brought together, right? Very successfully and a really unique period and very vibrant, dynamic music that every Khmer likes. But you go a step back and you, you're talking about a music form called Chike. Right? Mm-hmm. And Chike is an ancient Khmer music that uses primarily the traditional instruments. There are modernized versions of Chike, and it's where the male and the female will answer each other vocally and quite often sing in harmony together. And in fact, the words of a lot of the Chike songs are ancient poetry. So it's ancient Khmer poetry put to music. Now, the one thing uh, that I'd like to say about this is it's incredibly melodic. Right. No, it's just got beautiful melodies, and a lot of those melodies can also be merged with Western sounds together. But there are this. It's it's a very refined culture musically, and the more you explore into it, particularly that era, going back more into the traditional, how they use the xylophone, the chapaya, and and how it all comes together with voices, mm-hmm. and you know this this beautiful way of. The, the most famous one, or the one that all Khmers will know, is called Tum Tiel, which um, uh, the CD, one of the first CDs I heard with uh, Hum Savon and Eng Situl, and it's just beautiful. It's a full CD. I think there's, you know, there'd be, there'd be at least 20 or so poetry pieces within that, each one written to beautiful it's traditional Khmer. Yeah, stories. Yeah. Right, into beautiful Khmer music. But yes, there's, uh, again, like I said, you know, it's a remarkable musical culture. Yeah. And you grew up on that culture, Anya? Yeah, I was like, Tum that was my jam. Me and my mates, we used to do karaoke because <laughs> yeah. we used to live in this big blue wooden house mm-hmm. and on Trey Chung Bai, the other side of the river. Mm-hmm. And we had a TV and a karaoke machine. Well, some of those who are... And uh, we just sing every day. 
uh, listening. Uh, that lovely, up, lovely up. Well, that, that big blue house that Anya is referring to became Maxine's. Okay. Oh. Right, so Anya Which and was I owned by Snow, who was in Woodford. We were there famous. first. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. I heard that. I heard yeah. that house, which yeah. was, uh, for the sake of the listeners, is was a very old-fashioned, stilted wooden Khmer house that was leaning yeah. into the Mekong River from the yeah. banks, and every time you stood on the balcony, it felt like it was going to cave in, yeah. and it became a famous bar, which was run by. Ian Woodford, who is no longer with us, but he was one of the stars in the movie City of Ghosts with That's Matt right. Dillon. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I remember, I remember it well. <laughs> the, the obvious question, what was it like growing up with Dad? Oh, it's pretty amazing, you know. We've had our ups and downs, but he's my best mate. That's handy. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I arrived you, <laughs> when I was three. Right. Yeah, and then, like, I'm very, like... I'm very grateful that he raised me in Cambodia and not in Australia. Like, mm-hmm. I've had, like, a really, like, just okay. interesting, colourful life. So let's get this straight. You grew up in Cambodia, but you're an Australian citizen yeah, with a so Thai mother. Thai mom, born yeah. in Australia, Australian citizen, came here when I was three, and then I lived here for 20 years. Okay. And then... Um, I've been away for about almost eight years, just living in different countries. Well, you've been quite successful uh, internships with the Australian Embassy in Berlin, several other places. You're on the Colombo plan. Yeah. Uh, You're involved going back to what Chris was saying about uh, Michai. That's right. You're involved with the Bamboo Schools program, which is quite successful in Thailand and now here. Um, Yeah. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so I was really lucky. Um, I studied hard during uni, mm-hmm. um, and it all paid off. Um, I was awarded the New Colombo Plan Scholarship from the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Right. Thank you, Deepa. Yeah. Yeah, so through that program, I spent a year in Thailand um, where I um, had the opportunity to learn to study Thai, do an exchange semester of like Thai politics, but also... Um, I was really lucky. Um, I did an amazing internship where I gained a lot of insight um, through Michai's work mm-hmm. at the Bamboo School and his NGO, Thailand's largest NGO, PDA, right. the Population and Community mm-hmm. Development Association. Yeah, so as a continuation of that, I came here also to continue my new Colombo plan right. program. And now I'm working on a project where I'm like... Pro- like a manager now of an, an organization. So okay, you're allowed to be now. You're almost <laughs> yeah, yeah. you're almost thirty. You're allowed yeah, to have these yeah. types of jobs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, we're working very closely with PDA still in mm-hmm. the Bamboo School. Right, and the Bamboo School is all about educating kids who have a bit of a rough start to life. Yeah. And, um, I mean, like the Bamboo School in Thailand, yep. it's an amazing system. So, like, all the students there go to school for free. Uh, they don't have to pay a fee, no tuition fee, but in return, the students and their parents have to do 400 hours of community service right. and plant 400 trees every year. It's a fair start. Yeah, yeah. yeah we can do and, with a few more trees. And it's nice because, like, your money doesn't matter. Right. Like, you're not going to get in just because you have money. Okay. You know, you and your parents have to be committed. Right. And, um... Yeah, and they also have uh, like in, like students from Myanmar, Vietnam, mm-hmm. and Cambodia there. And this is like a beautiful just school in Buriram, well, northeast Three hundred schools in Thailand. Is that yeah. Correct? So because the model was so successful that um, it's been like they've partnered up with many other schools mm-hmm. throughout Thailand, like almost three hundred schools now, 
temples as well. And they also, a few months ago, started in a hospital where they built, like, an agriculture, a vegetable, like, plot. And, yeah, it's ultimately what it is, is it's turning the school into more than just a school, but also, like, a hub for... So they, 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 they grow crops, they can feed themselves, they can yeah, they sell, sell the it. excess food, they can... Yeah, and pa- the, like the parents and the elderly also come to right. the school to gain training and ways to, um, like, grow vegetables to become more self... Um, sustaining. Yeah, sustaining. <laughs> and it's quite successful here in Cambodia now. Yeah, so we have this pilot project happening now. So there's two schools in Poi Pai. Mm-hmm. And so far, um, the two Cambodian schools have done a great job looking after the vegetable plots. Right. And, yeah, it's it's just also really nice to see um, just Thailand and Cambodia working really well together. Yeah. It is good because they don't always get Yeah, along. this is like this is this is important for me because like um I think this is one of the most satisfying aspects of the project just because I'm half Thai mm-hmm. but I grew up here and I speak Khmer and like I love both and countries. And you speak Thai. And I speak Thai, but my right. Khmer is way better. You know, I would say Cambodia is home. And it does annoy me when I go on Facebook and I see, like, the Thais and the Khmer's bickering and hating on each other all they the time. They can be quite silly. And yeah. That, I'm not sure if you'd remember, yeah. but I'm sure Chris would remember it did, it did result in a conflict in 2008 at Pray That's right. Yeah. I remember this. Remember? Yeah, yeah, the Thai embassy was burnt down. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a nasty time, and I think it all erupted over what would now be a social influence if someone said something about someone and all of a sudden they're protesting outside embassies and everybody's getting nasty with each other. It was amazing how quickly it uh, just got out of control. It actually is a very good sign (coughs) to this Bamber School project Mm -hmm. and a very important one because it's fostering a very positive relationship between Thailand and Cambodia and the more that can be done, the better. Right. Let's put past uh, animosities aside and move forward. You know, so the, the the project's also promoted very much in an ASEAN context. And I think, as we're all aware, you know, the ASEAN region is definitely an economic powerhouse. Yes, it is. Yeah. about that. And it's, the, you know, it's globally, like, it's seen yeah. increasingly as the, the, the diplomatic term, I think, is the centrality of power. Yeah, and <laughs> it's, it's, like, you know, well, there's a huge <laughs> amount of progress being made, you know, for someone like me who came here in 96 when mm. it was... Uh, the biggest building had three stories. Um, the roads were dirt everywhere. There were, the, the country was still awash with guns. There was fighting, of course, you know, during the There was events. that building on Monivong, the, and uh, they had an elevator. That's right. They, yeah. they, they advertised, <laughs> we have an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> so people were looking for, they have an elevator. <laughs> and if you look at Cambodia now, I mean, there's no doubt, like every other nation, you know, every nation is flawed, but there's no doubt that the economy is dynamic. Phnom Penh is a growing, rapidly growing city. There's a very vibrant arts, creative scene underway. There's a very vibrant corporate sector evolving. There's a new middle class developing. There's a lot of positives, you know. There's enormous progress being made. The new middle class is interesting because, uh, in my mind, it basically represents those people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. So if you can end the conflict, provide the security, you don't have to do much else. Yeah. The, people, the economy will grow organically and there's no shortage of government people who would like to take uh, responsibility for the good, good things that have happened here when really 80% of the economy is still informal and most people do yeah. it themselves. Back well, to, that's the strength, uh, you know, if you, if you do look into Cambodia, the strength, of course, is between lies with the SMEs, right? right? 
you know, and you're you're correct. There's a different set of values evolving. I think there's a. I would say, or my, or my perception of Cambodia at the moment is that there's an enormous amount of hope. I think it's improved right? and a lot of potential. Yeah. There's still a lot of problems. No one will deny that. But like I said, every other country in the world is riddled with problems at the moment, right? Sure. But Cambodia has enormous potential. It's interesting to watch a peaceful generational shift take place, right? Um, it's interesting to know a generation in this country is, yeah. that doesn't know war. Yeah, exactly. And <coughs> there's, you know, like I, I, I said, you know, a very vibrant, creative music scene, art scene, fashion scene, uh, hospitality sector, tourism is growing rapidly. You know, there's a lot of positive sides, right? Agriculture on an agricultural level, but there's been an enormous amount achieved. Cambodian rice is winning prizes all over the world. Cambodian pepper has taken the world by storm. So, you know, despite all, there's an enormous amount of positive things going on, an enormous amount of potential. And Anya, speaking as someone who should still be here in 30 or 40 years time, what's your outlook? Where do you want to be? 10, 20 years from now? I want to have a plot of land near water mm -hmm. in Cambodia. Put my dad up there. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty simple, Pretty actually, kind. yeah. <laughs> I'd um, like that. As a retirement home, yeah, yeah. I'd like that. Yeah. I'll definitely be back here, though. It'd be the great Yoda, yeah. and people can go to the mountain, <laughs> seek advice, yeah. the oracle. <laughs> Thank you, daughter. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chris? Do you think you'll ever go back to Australia? No, not really. You know, uh, Cambodia is my home. You know, I've been here for 27 years now. Um, if anything, I'll probably do a couple of trips to Europe because I do have a very close relationship to Europe, those years that I lived in Germany. Uh, I do now have a 98-year-old mother still in... in um, You're a lucky man. You still yeah, have a grandmother so, uh, yeah. at 98. That's know, great. Uh, that is one reason I'd like to go back for a, definitely for a visit to see her before she turns 100, which she will. Uh, and she's still in Myrtleford, where I was raised, uh, born and raised. Uh, Lovely so, countryside. Yeah, potentially a short visit, and, uh, but otherwise Cambodia is well and truly my home. And you're Very well settled. Cambodia is my home. It will always be my home, but I need my escape once in a while as well. As we, as we all do. Yeah. <laughs> Fair <laughs> point. Okay. Yeah. On that note, Chris Minko, Anya, thank you very much. Luke, thanks for the thank opportunity. Thank you so much, Luke. Mm -hmm. Hakun Chan. Jamia Blia.